Evening, everyone. Captain Craig Buddy here, visiting from the History of Pirates podcast. The latest episode of Rob Monaco's The History of Our World has just been released. My friend and yours, the bloody buccaneer Rob Monaco, has given me the opportunity to introduce this amazing podcast. Rob has a perfect voice for a podcast, and his ability to jump between different times and places without missing a beat is impressive to say the least. Add to that Rob's natural sense of humor and timing, and it's easy to see this podcast going far, becoming a classic along the side of greats like the history of Rome. And now it's time for you all to meet the real bloody buccaneer, the one and only Rob Monaco. Welcome back to the podcast history of our world. Chapter 69, Rome. The 8th century BC. It's in these 100 years that the northern kingdom of Israel falls to Sargon II of Assyria. King Ping of the Zhou moves his capital city east, marking both the beginning of the spring and autumn period and the slow descent of his dynasty. In Greek Ionia, the blind poet Homer is spinning fabulous tales of heroes, gods, and monsters to rapt audiences. Uh, I mean, if he actually existed, of course. Busy time this century, and staying with the Greeks for the moment, they're also keeping super busy. Never mind figuring out just what it means to be Greek, we also see their polices sending colonists out west to cross the Mediterranean and into Sicily and the Italian peninsula. The origins of Magna Graecia start here with cities like Syracuse, Taurus, Cumi, and Naxos, and their influence will be felt for centuries to come. Yet this isn't the first time the Hellenic world came to visit their neighbors to the west. Possibly as early as the 11th or 10th centuries BC, the Mycenaeans made contact with the indigenous peoples living in the central Italian regions of Etruria and Latium. How much interaction took place, hard to say for sure, but suffice to say the locals definitely liked what they saw. Their soldiers adapted the hoplite fighting style, long spears protruding from an overlapping shield wall. Artwork incorporated Greek motifs like the Minotaur and Hercules, and architecture there bears a striking resemblance to styles found in the Aegean. Now, hard evidence of Greek pottery doesn't appear for another century or so, but even then, it's safe to conclude that the early Italic tribes felt some inspiration from these visitors. And what about these tribes? Lots to choose from, but let's focus on one of the smallest, who call themselves the Latini, or Latins. They've settled down in coastal central Italy, south of the Tiber River, although while people had definitely been living here since as early as the 17th century BC, these Latins probably arrived around the 10th century. As far as where to start a society, you can't pick a better spot. Here's a place with easy access to both the bounty of the sea and the land. Dense forests with massive ancient trees still stretched far and wide. Warm summers and mild winters meant long growing seasons for staples like wheat, grapes, and olives, and ample grassland for grazing animals. Over the next 200, 300 years or so, the Latins had towns with palaces, temples, and open forums. A large and growing population meant larger cemeteries. Not necessarily a bad thing, and the splendor of many tombs also means a growing degree of wealth. In short, civilization is exploding out of the starting line by the people who literally define the very word. Although that can't be how our story starts, right? Seems conveniently simple that everything just happens to come together here. So let's forget about the archaeology and concrete facts. When have those ever been right? Instead, let me tell you how things really began for the tribes of Latium. 
and it all starts over in Anatolia with the death of the Hittite Empire. The 1180s BC. While the Phrygians and Cascans pick off the last defenders of Hattusa from the east, over by the Dardanelles, Mycenaean Greeks have overtaken the empire's strongest and wealthiest client kingdom, Troy. As a decade of pent-up rage is unleashed upon the city, a Trojan prince named Aeneas has secretly made it out safely, carrying his elderly father on his back and accompanied by whatever friends, Trojans, and countrymen as he could. Any destination was better than here, although not wanting to risk navigating the dangerous waters of the Black Sea, they instead sailed west, stopping for a bit of anachronistic fun in Carthage. From there it was north to Sicily, and further on to the western coast of central Italy. It's a good place to rebuild society and all, so the Trojans got right to work, even if this meant raiding nearby villages to replenish low supplies. Not the nicest way to introduce yourself to the neighbors, and the Trojans had landed in Latium, whose king, Latinus, rushed home from a war to confront this alien threat. Would you believe me if I said his name and the region are just a coincidence? Latinus prepares his attack, but holds upon seeing the Trojans wearing Greek-style armor. A meeting is called where Aeneas pleads for the king to forgive his hostility and to grant the Trojans land and resources for their new home. Hmm, violent foreigners asking for land. You know, they could become a serious danger one day, maybe even conquering the kingdom. But then again, they might remember this kindness and instead become faithful allies and friends. It's a tough call, so Latinus does what successive generations of Latins do in these situations. Ask the birds! Every society we've covered, and plenty more that we haven't, had some form of divination or interpreting omens. China had the oracle bones, Israel had the judges and prophets, Greece had a lady who'd ramble on after huffing noxious fumes, and the Latins had birds. Little known fact, all birds, from the tiniest hummingbird to the big old cassowary, know the will of the gods. But they won't just say it outright. Not because they're jerks. Well, some might be jerks, but because, you know, they're birds. And this is where an augur, or auspex, comes in. A priest who can crack the code by watching flight patterns, what the appearance of a specific bird means, or how chickens react during feed time, or whether or not a quacking duck means anything more than more breadcrumbs, please. In this case, the augurs gave Latinus a thumbs up to Aeneas's request, and the king replies thusly. I should be very solicitous for your safety if it were clear to me that you have come here in search of a habitation, and that contented with a suitable share of the land and enjoying in a spirit of friendship what shall be given you, you will not endeavor to deprive me of the sovereignty by force. If the assurances you give me are real, I desire to give and receive pledges which will preserve our compact inviolate. Done deal. Aeneas and Latinus hug it out, and to prove his sincerity, the Trojans help win that war for him. Aeneas even becomes part of the family by marrying the princess Lavinia, to which he names his new city after, Lavinium. They have a son, Ascanius, who later helps ease congestion in that city from the growing population by founding a city of his own, Alba Longa. The Latin monarchy ends up being focused here as opposed to Lavinium, and those rulers certainly have interesting lives. Early on, there's Prince Brutus, who chose adventure over government and sailed past the Pillars of Hercules to the mysterious north, where he kills some giants to become the legendary first king of Britain. For some princes who stuck around, they were so respected that in death, their names were bestowed onto the natural world, such as King Tiberinius and the Tiber River, and Aventinus and the Aventine Hill. 
There was also Aloysius, a petty man who wasn't content just being king. He wanted to be a god. From his estate atop a hill, he employed cheap parlor tricks to terrify the populace, mimicking the sound of thunder and the flash of lightning. Well, that is, until an actual thunderstorm, when the lake adjacent to his palace flooded, drowning both he and his household while they slept. Hubris. Not even once. Let's move on ahead to 794 BC. Numitor is king of Alba Longa, but nasty younger brother Amulius isn't happy playing second fiddle, and forces Numitor to hand over the crown and retire to the countryside. Now, either from a desire to prevent bloodshed, or because Amulius was simply stronger, Numitor chooses not to fight, and agrees to abdicate. Although that bit about the no bloodshed isn't accurate. The people are safe, but not the royal family. Numitor's son, Amulius's nephew is alive and technically the true heir. He's also a stray hare that needs plucking, so he's killed. Teenage niece Rhea Silvia couldn't become king, but her child potentially could. To prevent this, she's forced to become a Vestal Virgin, taking the oath of chastity and servitude to the goddess of the hearth. All loose ends were assumed to be tied up, but, I mean, abstinence has a pretty poor success rate, and Rhea quickly becomes pregnant. The stories behind the father's identity abound, of course. Some say an amorous suitor couldn't handle her new lifestyle and forced himself upon her. Others say Amulius himself, his face hidden behind a mask, committed the foul deed to further humiliate his brother. The story that stuck, however, was that the god of war himself, Mars, was responsible for this violation of her body and spirit. Well, that's what Rhea told her father, at least. Hey, she never wanted to be a Vestal Virgin. She's a teenage princess, meant for a life of fun and good times. But now she's 16 and pregnant, and Dad's not buying the whole Mars did it story. Not that Numitor doesn't want to believe her, he's just worried about Amulius' response, since there's a good chance that if and when he finds out, both her and the child will die. But then again, this child will have royal blood in its tiny veins. Maybe she's right. Maybe Mars Ultor is the father, Mars the Avenger, and he's blessed Numitor with a way to right the evils of his brother. Sweet plan, you might say. And it sure started like that. Except as the months progressed, finding excuses for Rhea's absences from work and an ever-growing belly were proving to be a challenge. Amulius was suspicious, despite assurances from Numitor that she was just a healthy girl with a healthy appetite. Guards were sent to keep watch over her anyway, and sure enough, were the first ones to report that Rhea had given birth to not one son, but two. Twins. This was twice the good news Numitor was hoping for, but twice the threat to Amulius, who immediately ordered the death of both his niece and the babies. Rhea is spared thanks to the efforts of her cousin, Amulius's daughter, but not the newborns, who were placed inside a wooden ark and turned over to his servants. The orders were to toss the Ark into the Tiber, where the babies would either drown or be dashed to pieces against the rocks, which may have been the case if the river had not been overflowing at the time. At seeing this, the servants decided it was too much effort to throw the Ark into the river, and simply placed it on the banks, letting the waters slowly carry it off instead. This is what happens, as the Ark is carried downstream, past two other baskets containing baby Sargon and Moses. Um, until the speed picks up and the Ark is smashed against a rock, the babies tossed onto the muddy riverbanks, crying and banged up, but alive. 
It is here that a she-wolf discovered the mewling infants, but instead of attacking, allowed the babies to suckle from her instead. This miraculous sight was witnessed by an awestruck shepherd, and once the wolf left, he brought the babies back to his home, where he and his wife could safely raise them back to good health. This account is far-fetched, even for ancient historians who usually eat up this kind of stuff. Livy and Dionysus, more so the latter, even admit to a different version of this tale that's far more believable. The Latin word for she-wolf, lupa, has another definition, a nickname for a prostitute. Now this other version goes that Numitor was able to procure two other newborn boys, try not to question how, and switch them out for his grandsons. Amulius has the fakes drowned, and the real ones are entrusted to the care of Faustinus, Numitor's head shepherd. He in turn brings them to his wife, Laurentia, an Arcadian Greek who was known as Lupa because of, as Livy so prudishly puts it, her unchaste lifestyle. She's a self-employed prostitute, an entrepreneur if you will, and raises the two boys, now named Romulus and Remus, with the same love and care as if they were her own. She even throws in some good old Greek education, reading, math, and athletics, that last one being their specialty. The brothers had boundless energy, which was great for helping Faustinus with the shepherding business and hunting game, but that got boring real fast. Wrestling their friends also started out fun, but Romulus and Remus are those kids who always play too rough and take it too far, and no one wants to roughhouse with them anymore. The next up, they get creative and turn to beating up thieves. The twins figured, hey, no one's going to complain about a little excessive force with this one, huh? And no one did, but they were so good at it that they also managed to run out of thieves. So now with few options left and all that testosterone still bubbling up, they began picking fights with rival shepherds over grazing territories. It's not like everyone had carefully constructed white picket fences to mark off their land. Boundaries could be a little nebulous, and as such, most might forgive the occasional trespassing sheep. Not Romulus and Remus, of course. They eagerly used any transgressions against their adopted father's land as justification for a turf war, initiating hostilities first with words, which wasn't really their forte, and then with fists, and finally blades. Blood has been spilled, so these rival shepherds went to the man who owned their lands to complain. This man was Numitor, and he patiently listened as his men spoke of monstrous twins, violent, rude, ill-mannered. Of course, all Numitor's thinking was, oh, they're perfect. Well, his shepherds are given assurances that action would be taken, but he's planning nothing of the sort. It's the king's job to keep the people safe, right? Amulius is really the one to take care of this. And so Numitor goes to his brother, repeating this story of these two punk kids. Romulus and Remus are summoned to the royal court to receive the king's justice and punishment, and at some point during the trial, Numitor loudly reveals the truth to Romulus and Remus, about their mom, about him, about Mars, and most importantly, that if he were still king, that would make them princes. Well, it doesn't seem like they understood any of what he was saying, so Numitor also has to shout out, If there was ever a time to avenge yourselves, this is it. The brothers bumped their fists together, cried out, Wonder Twin Powers activate, and pretty much slaughtered anyone who got in their way. Amulius was now dead. Numitor was king of Alba Longa once again, and Romulus and Remus found their station in life much improved. In gratitude for their help, Numitor gives his grandsons a better reward than just being his heirs, granting them resources and supplies to build their own city. Now you might think this sounds like he's trying to get rid of them, and you might be right. Those boys aren't exactly models of princely restraint or whatever, but they're more than happy about this deal. 
Numitors even included a small army of citizens to populate their new settlement, who happened to be made up mostly of his political enemies, those who would have been exiled anyway, and some noble descendants of those first Trojan refugees. An interesting crew, but who doesn't like a challenge, right? Certainly not Romulus and Remus, who figure, why stop there? Let's further ramp up the difficulty by splitting up to create two separate cities. Why work twice as hard? Think of it as a fun competition. It's a contest to see who can build the better city. Winner gets bragging rights, and everyone will move there for good times aplenty. What could go wrong? Well, obviously, everything. Good intentions quickly corrupted into jealous suspicions, as each brother's side started thinking of the other team less as friendly rivals and more as hated foes. Soon this thinking poisoned the brothers' hearts as well, and whatever love they once bore one another was replaced with a complete desire to see the other one destroyed. For his city, Romulus selected a plot of open land near the Palatine Hill, located on the eastern side of the Tiber and one of the seven hills in the area. Remus chose a site either on the nearby Aventine Hill or between three and five miles south of his brothers. No account is 100% sure. Even before the blueprints had been drawn up, the trash-talking was in full swing, each brother arguing that his pick was the best. Grandpa Numitor was no help in this matter, telling them to leave it up to the gods. Meaning, of course, the birdies. The two brothers set up watch posts on the Palatine and Aventine hills to wait for any omen that would show preference for their pick. And Romulus is the first to decide that this is stupid. Time to make stuff up. He sends messengers to Remus's camp with news that he's already spotted an awesome omen and his city is way better. Remus replies in person, calling his brother a liar because he already spotted six vultures flying overhead. To which at that very moment, 12 vultures flew over the camp. This went on back and forth as the brothers claimed to see more and more birds in a bid to outmanipulate the other. Words and patience not being their strong suit, the already contentious rivalry now turned violent. A battle is waged between the two camps, and amidst the fighting, Remus is killed. Or not, another version says that while Romulus and his men were working on their fortifications, Remus came to mock and harass them making some not-so-subtle commentary about the weak and flimsy state of their tiny little walls. To really rub it in, he also proceeded to hop over this in-progress wall, at which either a worker drove a pickaxe into the side of Remus's head, or Romulus lunged at his brother and beat him to death, saying, So perish whoever else shall overleap my battlements. Well, I mean, that's what Livy has him saying. He probably said something more like, It's not about the size of the wall, but how you use it. Maybe. But for now, Remus is dead, and Romulus is victorious. The dream that would have been Remoria would never come to fruition, for it is now April 21st, 753 BC, and this is the traditional founding date for the city of Romulus, Rome. The survivors from both sides numbered about 3,000, and after passing through some rituals Romulus devised to absolve them of past wrongdoings, they all pledged their loyalty and service. He was now king, Rex, appointed by his new citizens to lead them towards a bright future. Rome certainly needed that strong leadership, as it was very much more idea than city at this point. Drainage ditches needed digging, huts needed roofs, the gods needed temples, and the walls? Well, the walls are just fine. Although maybe they could be a bit bigger. After all, if these Romans don't get over their wall envy, failure could mean an early end from any number of hostile tribes surrounding them on all sides. 
To name a few, there's the Iqui, Volsci, Brutii, and Sabini to the south and east. North is Etruria, home to the Etruscans. Now, they're no tribe, but a well-established civilization of their own, with plans for even greater glory. And last of the threats are their fellow Latins. The followers of Romulus, these first Romans, are also Latins, true. And the Latins are easily the smallest tribe living on the Italian peninsula. But that will not prevent them from turning on each other in an instant. So Romulus is the grandson of the Albalongan king. Great, fantastic. His little town is also made up entirely of people society didn't want. These are also guys who just stopped killing each other over who had a nicer hill, mind you. More are arriving every day as Romulus proudly declares, Give me your crooks, your ne'er-do-wells, your goons, yearning to break skulls. The other Latin tribes have every reason to be cautious here, because like it or not, Rome is just getting started. And that's next time on the Podcast History of Our World. <laughs>